Welcome to the Open Door Church podcast. Our prayer is that you will be encountered and encouraged by the Holy Spirit and challenged by the word of the Lord. May the Lord bless you and stir faith as you listen to this week's message. Over the last number of weeks, guys, we've been walking through the life of Paul. And I've been really excited to do this. Um, One of my favorite things uh, to do as a pastor and some of my favorite sermons that I've preached over the last number of years have been these character studies where we've looked at a a particular person in Scripture and walked through some of their life. Uh, Now, if we were going to exhaustively cover all of Paul's life, uh, I would probably not have to preach uh, or come up with like some kind of new content uh, for as long as I'm a pastor, <laughs> because we could uh, we could talk about Paul's life for a very long time. So we've actually focused it in on Acts chapter 26, where Paul is before King Agrippa, and he's giving his testimony of his life before Christ, his conversion on the road to Damascus, how that changed him, his life after Christ. And so today we're going to kind of wrap up Acts chapter 26, uh, where we've been looking at the testimony of Paul. But before we do that, I kind of want to walk us through, maybe recap some of the places that we've been with Paul. When we first began examining Paul, uh, we encountered him not as a disciple of Jesus or an apostle of Jesus, but we encounter him as Saul the Pharisee from Tarsus. He's this great antagonist to the way of Jesus, and we find him first persecuting the followers of Jesus. He's actively hunting them down. I want to know, I'm sure, I'm sure there's been like a B-grade like movie about Paul that has been made somewhere with like some cheesy like Christian actor, like super low budget. But when I think about like, somebody, people are nodding, they've seen it. <laughs> but uh, if, when I think of like the blockbuster films that are out there right now, I think like the life of Saul and the life of Paul would make a pretty radical movie. Um, anyway, but he's this, he's this great antagonist to the church. He's actively persecuting the followers of Jesus. In fact, the first mention that we have of Saul in the scriptures places him at the martyrdom of Stephen in the book of Acts. Uh, Acts 7, 8, um, and uh, Stephen was actually what is uh, considered the first martyr, the first of many Christians who would die explicitly for their faith in Christ, and as a result of that, we see uh, Christianity kind of exploding onto the scene. Uh, We see great persecution break out against the church, but it scatters these Jewish believers uh, all over the place, and uh, it's, it's actually pretty interesting. But we see Saul there. Uh, that's the first place we encounter him. And uh, all this to say, um, I wrote this down, that God can use anyone he so desires to bring about his glory. And I would bet that there uh, were few people alive more adamantly opposed to Christianity than Saul initially was. But God is not intimidated by anyone's perceived degree of bondage or lostness. And I want you to understand this. Paul, Saul, uh, same guy, we talked about that, um, is this great enemy of the cross. Uh, if, if we wanted to really break it down, we, we have pretty strong reason to believe he was one of the most adamantly opposed to the cross and to this person of Jesus. 
And God, in his infinite wisdom and great mercy, looks at Paul, looks at Saul, this Pharisee, this antagonist, and says, I want to use him to bring the gospel message to the rest of the world. And so I, I want us to understand here that when we're looking at his life, when we're looking at the situation, that uh, the degree or extent that God wants to use someone is not always readily uh, evident to the casual observer. Um, when we're just kind of looking at people's lives, when we're looking at what they have going on, um, uh, Saul would be one of those guys that I would be like, God's never going to use that guy. <laughs> especially to preach Jesus, but we see that being the opposite in Scripture. And I, I wrote this, I wonder how many of us have failed to engage in conversation with someone simply because we've written them off as too far gone, or too dark, or too lost, or too broken, or too opposed to Jesus, that, you know what, that's not even a can of worms I want to open. Um, I, I had one of these days this last Friday where uh, I just kind of missed it. Does anybody have days like that where you just kind of uh, really screw up? <laughs> no, nobody, just me. Uh, if, I, if I'm honest, uh, I have those days probably more than days I get it right. Uh, and uh, this was one of those humbling examples I'm going to share with you. Um, but I was downtown. I was at the music shop right there next to the malt shop downtown, Carl. You guys know Carl. Uh, he fixes guitars in town um, and was, uh, you know, he was doing some work on my father-in-law's guitar and I went down to go pick it up and as I'm getting ready to pick up his guitar, this homeless guy walks in that is uh, clearly inebriated and uh, has a giant backpack on. He's carrying his sleeping bag and stuff. He sets it outside the shop and he comes in and proceeds to walk around this pretty small space, this tight space, and he knocks over my guitar that I'm just getting ready to fix, and then goes and picks up like this $3,000 guitar off of the wall, and he's asking, how much is this guitar? Do you do layaway? And these things that is, uh, it just is a, it's, a, it's an interest, it's a situation. And uh, as I was there kind of observing things, I was frustrated I was just kind of upset. I was like, who is this guy? Like, come on, get out of my hair. And I, I clearly had no patience for this man. And I, I, I observed as Carl, the owner of the music shop, uh, who I, I do not believe is a believer or a follower of Jesus. Um, I may be wrong about that. Had uh, just infinitely more patience than I had for this fella that was in his shop breaking his things um, and just uh, really felt like, um, really felt like, that's not what I was trying to say. Uh, I really felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit on how much of a jerk I can be and how much I had ridden this guy off completely to the point where he was beneath me or he was too far gone or he was too drunk to even have a conversation with. And as he left the music shop and as I was gathering my stuff to go, getting in my car, I just uh, really, really felt convicted by the Holy Spirit that, you know, I passed up an opportunity to share compassion and the love of Christ and the message of the cross with someone because I had this long list of reasons on why it wasn't a good time, on why it wasn't a good fit. And I, 
I tried to argue with the Lord. Well, he was, he was intoxicated. He wasn't going to understand anything that I was going to say. All just to kind of justify my, indif- my indifference and my inaction. And I'm not saying that you need to feel guilty about every homeless person that you've passed or every opportunity that you've missed. But in my perception and in my action, I had ridden this guy off as too far gone that God couldn't use. And as I was thinking about the message that I was writing and how we were talking about Paul, I just felt the Holy Spirit gently nudge me and ask, what if I wanted to use him to be a missionary? What if I, what if I wanted to use a conversation today to spark about something so much bigger than what sheer mind can comprehend? And I'm not, I'm not saying this in a way to make anybody feel bad or obviously uh, I've dealt with the Lord on this, but I just I, I want to be clear. I, I, I so believe in the transformative power of the gospel that we preach that I, I want to be, be certain that I share this truth, that no one is too far gone for God to reach. I say that, you know, we talk about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We can get into theological debates about that later. But the reality is those that you think are the most opposed and least likely to be used by God ought to be the ones that we're praying for the most earnestly. Because imagine the potential of their testimony and the impact it could have on the kingdom of darkness. I look at Paul and I see one of the primary reasons people listen to him. One of the primary reasons why his ministry was so impactful was because his life took such a dramatic change. And so I want us to be observant. I want us to see people with the, the eyes of potential rather than just where they are currently. And so I, I wrote this. I believe this. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to see people where they are with the lens of potential. Because the Lord doesn't just see things as they are, but as they ought to be. I want you to understand that. The Lord, we might see someone that is broken. I might see a homeless guy that is intoxicated and incoherent. But the Lord doesn't look at him just like that. He sees a son that he dearly loves, that he wants to see changed, and he wants to see, uh, to see restored, right? We, we understand that. And I want to begin to see people with the same lens that the Lord sees people and to which extent that he went to the cross so that could be a possibility. You see, I don't think he just saw Saul the Pharisee. I think he saw Paul the missionary changed by Jesus. We cannot underestimate the redemptive work of the cross. When we look at someone, even if their life is a complete mess, I need to be reminded that mine was too before Jesus. And so my encouragement to each and every one of us is, obviously we're talking about Paul, is I want to be reminded of the potential of one encounter with Jesus. No, this is supposed to be a sermon series about Paul and his life. Um, but I've had Judges chapter 6 on my heart all week. And I couldn't really understand why. Uh, because I had fleshed out the story of how I was going to walk through Paul's life. And initially this sermon, we were going to talk about him being shipwrecked this week. And kind of wrapped up the whole book of Acts. But I, I couldn't get past this story 
in Judges chapter 6, the story of Gideon. It's actually a story that I've preached out of multiple times since I've been a pastor here. And I was wrestling with the Lord. Uh, God, why is this something that you keep just bringing to my attention? Every time I'd go into prayer, every time I'd think about what I was going to preach this week and try to work on my sermon, uh, Judges chapter 6 came up. And I, I feel like this is where it was supposed to go. So if you guys turn with me to Judges chapter 6, uh, I'm just going to read in verse 7 here. It says this, And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, that the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. Now Israel in this story, in this context in Judges chapter 6, is in a bad way because the Midianites are coming up and taking all of their food, taking all of their crops. They're hiding in caves. They're hiding their food uh, because of the oppressive hand of Midian. And it's happening because they've rebelled against the Lord and they've not obeyed his voice. And that's what he says here in verse 10. He says, this is happening to you because you have not obeyed my voice. But the Lord responds in verse 11. It says this, now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Oprah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, whose son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now, uh, Old Testament topology here. Many would argue that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ being Jesus. Uh, however you want to look at that, uh, this is the Lord. It was at least a messenger from God himself. Um, but I tend to uh, read this with the perspective that this was likely Jesus himself appearing to him, saying, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. But in 13, it goes on. It says, Gideon said to him, oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all the miracles which our fathers told us about, saying, did not the Lord bring us out of Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And I think this is a valid question. I think this is a question that a lot of young people, and not just young people in general, I think people in, uh, I think people in general are asking of the Lord, if the Lord is really for us, why are all these bad things happening to us? If the Lord is really who he said he is, where are his miracles? Where are the things that we read about? Why aren't we seeing them happen today? It feels oppressive. It feels hopeless. And he responds to the angel of the Lord this way. This, this shows how discouraged. This shows how little faith Gideon actually had in this moment that he would respond to the angel of the Lord in this way. He's saying, come on, man. If, if God is even really for us, if God is really here, man, we wouldn't be in this mess. So I don't know who you think you are. It, that, that's, that's the kind of mentality that I pick up when I read this. It, 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 he doesn't take it seriously. He's so discouraged. He's so depressed. Things are so overwhelming for him. He responds with zero faith at all. 
in the fact that if God's really for us, man, why is all this happening to us? But it says in verse 14, Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And Gideon's like, what? (laughs) So he said to them, oh, my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. I am a wimp. (laughs) It's basically what he's saying. It's like, this is ridiculous. But the Lord responds with this in verse 16. It says, the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. I'm not going to fully preach the rest of that, that passage of Scripture here, but what I see here was Gideon not seeing the potential that was before him. Gideon not understanding that with the Lord, all things are actually possible. And what we have here is we have the, the angel of the Lord seeing Gideon as a mighty man of valor, seeing with the lens of having heaven's perspective, of understanding that with God, right, <laughs> with, with, with the power of the Lord, if the Lord is with us, right, who can be against us? Seeing here with Gideon, if God was with him, that there was a complete change about his identity. No longer was he the weakest. No longer was he the least. No longer was it a hopeless circumstance. But rather, with the Lord, uh, they were going to actually be victorious. And so uh, I wrote this, God doesn't merely see yours or mine or others' present realities, but I believe he sees the potential of what can happen when he's with us. So if we're going back to Paul, if we're going back to Saul, remember, same guy, we, uh, we looked at his life pre-conversion, right? Bad guy. He was killing people in the name of religion, always been bad, whether it was Paul back then, Saul back then. Uh, I know there, there are some Christians that still think like, uh, you know, killing people in the name of religion is like a, a thing. Um, you know, the dark ages and crusades and stuff, all bad. Don't advocate those. Uh, Paul, bad guy, pre-Jesus, encounters Jesus, encounters the resurrected Lord Jesus on his way to Damascus, where he was going to continue persecuting Christians, right? It's this powerful encounter with the Lord, and everything changes. And so last week, we looked at how Paul demonstrated that change through repentance and obedience. And we saw how those are connected to one another. That repentance is more than just a feeling or an emotion. It's more than just remorse, but it's actually demonstrated by application of instruction that is received from Jesus. And so understanding this, that obedience is actually the refruit of repentance. And we looked at Paul's message there in Acts chapter 26, where he says, do works befitting of repentance. Repent and turn to the Lord and do works befitting of repentance, understanding that it's not just a feeling. It's not just an emotion. It has to move past that and actually be fleshed out in intentional application. And then we concluded last week with the the most important part of all of this, because we can kind of understand the phrases and we can kind of look at these things and understand kind of the progression here but the, the key thing to make all of this work, it's kind of like the idea of having a car but no fuel. 
uh, <laughs> it, it can look real pretty, but it's not going to go anywhere. It's not going to actually work. It's not going to turn over if you don't have gas in it, is the fact that we desperately need the Holy Spirit to be effective as a witness. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to be effective as a Christian. Without the working of the Holy Spirit, this is all just theory. This is all just philosophy. This is all just empty words. But the only way that it materializes into something that is actually worthwhile is the empowerment of being filled with the Holy Spirit. We looked at Acts chapter 1-8, that, that the Holy Spirit was promised to fill believers, to be witnesses. Amen? And uh, that brings us all the way back to Acts 26. That was my introduction. We good? <laughs> Beginning in verse 22, I'm going to backtrack just a few verses that we did read last week, but I think it's so helpful. And the very first part of this, it says, therefore, having obtained help from God. This once again emphasizes the need and the necessity for the Holy Spirit. It goes on to say, To this day I stand witnessing both to small and great, saying no other things than those which the prophets and Moses said would come, that the Christ would suffer, that he would be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Now as he made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. In verse 25, he said, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things. For I'm convinced that none of these things escape his attention. Since this thing was not done in a corner, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me today might become both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these chains. When he said these things, the king stood up as well as the governor and Bernice and those who sat with them. And when they had gone aside, they talked amongst themselves, saying, this man is doing nothing deserving of death or chains. Then Agrippa said to Festus, this man might have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. I want to highlight a few things just out of the, the first few verses here, and it's particularly Acts chapter 23. But Paul's message, even before the king, it talks about how he, here he was going to witness before, great, uh, before uh, small and great alike. Uh, actually, if you jump back to Acts chapter 9, when uh, Paul first receives his encounter with the Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, and Ananias comes before him, uh, <coughs> we see in that whole segment that uh, Paul was instructed that he was actually going to witness before kings uh, as a testimony to uh, the life of Jesus, and we see this happening here. But uh, even before King Agrippa, Paul's message is still simply the gospel. It's still simply the message of the cross. And I think Acts chapter 26, verse 23, really uh, summarizes Paul's three main points of ministry. But if we read 23 again, it says that Christ would suffer, that he'd be the first to rise from the dead, and would proclaim light to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. Um, so the three main points of Paul's preaching, and we see this throughout the entirety of his life, is Jesus' death, his resurrection, and the preaching of good news to the whole world without respect to either Jew or Gentile. 
And so I kind of uh, wrote it down this way. Um, We see that uh, the Christ would suffer. Jesus died. Uh, He would be the first to rise from the dead is now Jesus isn't dead. I know that's confusing because Jesus died. Now he's not dead. Uh, We understand this first to rise from the dead uh, language that exists there. Um, You might be confused. It would be like Lazarus, uh, right? These other people in scripture, uh, didn't they rise from the dead? Uh, But they had to suffer judgment and die again. And so when we're talking about resurrection, we see Jesus is the first one to conquer death. So Jesus died. Now he's not dead. And there is hope for all. There is hope for everyone. This proclaiming light to Jews and Gentiles. This is the message of the cross. And so when I'm thinking about this, Paul had a lot to say about the message of the cross. Uh, A number of years earlier when he was planting the church in Corinth, he would say this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 17. and uh, He says, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Did you know, friends, it is possible to preach 100% biblically accurate message of the cross and have it not be powerful? This is crazy. You can get it all right. I can tell you that Jesus died for you. I can tell you that, I can tell you that, uh, um, you know, that, uh, that, you know, I could, wow, I'm struggling to, uh, <laughs> to preach the gospel uh, that way. But it is possible to preach the gospel and have it not be powerful. And that happens when we try to uh, amend that gospel message with wisdom and human eloquence. This is what Paul warns against. He says, I, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest it be emptied of its power. And so Paul is saying that there is a way to preach the gospel. There is a way to preach this message of Jesus in human wisdom with human eloquence that will rob it of its power. There is something supernatural about the message of the cross. And I need you to know here, it doesn't need your wisdom. It doesn't need your eloquence. It doesn't need your talent. And I love the fact that Paul didn't have to resort to some kind of emotional trickery when he's preaching to King Agrippa here. He simply preached the gospel. You don't need to be naturally gifted to communicate the gospel. You need to be supernaturally faithful. Too many of us have kind of ridden off our responsibility to make disciples, to to, to write off our responsibility to share the gospel because we're not naturally gifted. Our personalities aren't geared that way. You know, God created me an introvert rather than an extrovert, and we hide behind that, but the reality is it was never about your natural prerogative. It was all about the supernatural enabling of the Holy Spirit. And to put it simply, Paul's message here in Acts chapter 26 before King Agrippa was powerful. It was powerful. His testimony backed it up. He preached the simple gospel. But guess what? It didn't work. King Agrippa didn't become a Christian. I mean, at least not here. Um, I probably should have done some more research, but I'm fairly positive he doesn't become a Christian ever. (laughs) So... If it doesn't work 100% of the time, 
maybe I should pick a different passage to teach about evangelism from, right? <laughs> maybe I should have found an example where Paul preaches and everybody gets saved. Maybe I should have went like to Acts chapter 2 and Peter preached the simple gospel and like 3,000 people got saved, right? Maybe, maybe that would have been a better uh, proof text for this. But Agrippa doesn't become a Christian. You might think, well, maybe we shouldn't be following Paul's example of preaching the cross and the simple gospel. Maybe his example of evangelism just doesn't work. Our responsibility to be a witness of Jesus Christ is not to make people believe. Your job is not to force anybody into conversion. I want you to understand this. The Holy Spirit is the one that draws men and women to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Not Nate Ward, not Stan Gill, definitely not Adam Perez. <laughs> Inevitably, people do make their own decisions, and a lot of the times they make bad decisions. But I can't decide to follow Jesus for someone, and neither can you. But what I can do and what our responsibility is, is to present him and his message clearly. It is, however, and I believe this, it is 100% our job not to hinder his working by watching the way that we live closely. The message of the cross doesn't need our help, our talent, or our ability to make it effective. It does need our faithfulness. This should be encouraging to you. I know it's encouraging to me because I don't have a lot of natural talent or not like a lot of natural ability. Um, you know, has anybody here, um, anybody here like to snowboard or ski or anything like that? Woo! Did you guys know I like to snowboard? Yeah. <laughs> it's like one of my favorite things. My wife is an absolute gym and she told me when I heard that it was snowing on Thursday night and I was kind of looking and didn't really want to ask her if I could go snowboarding because I knew that meant she would have to stay with the kids. And she's like, but she was such a gracious person to me and said, no, you should go up. You need a day off. And I was like, really? And so I got to go snowboarding for a couple of hours on Friday morning and it was, I, I was in my happy place. It was just awesome. It was great. Um, but I remember uh, my first couple of years starting to snowboard, like I was like 18, 19 and uh, just thinking like, yeah, I, I can do this. You know, I'm a young man. I, I can figure this out, and I'm constantly eating it and, you know, breaking my back and all this stupid stuff trying to figure out how to snowboard. And there'd be like a three- or four-year-old kid just ripping it down the slopes, passing me up while I'm on my butt. Most of you probably have never experienced that, but that is a truly humbling experience. And I realized quickly, I'm just not naturally talented at a lot of things. <laughs> but there are some kids that really are. The same thing like with music. I, I mean, I've been trying to play music with people for a long time. And then I hang out with a guy like Shannon. And he's just like, oh, yeah, I could just pick up any instrument. And I'm a prodigy. And it's awesome. <laughs> I shouldn't pick on Shannon like that. Um, but, but the reality of it is, uh, when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to being a witness for Jesus, it is not based on how naturally talented you are, but it is, uh, I believe it is based on whether or not you're filled with the Holy Spirit. 
whether or not you're supernaturally enabled. And that's why God promises to give his spirit to those who ask. And it's of utmost important that we are living in the spirit, not in the flesh. Can I tell you on Friday when I was hanging out at that music shop, I was not in the spirit. And I, I, I say that with a repentant heart. Like I, I am genuinely sad about that. I might say it kind of in a lighthearted manner, but I, I am grieved by that. I believe the Holy Spirit was grieved by that too. And we have this language that I don't know when we picked it up, but a number of years ago when we talk about, well, I was in the flesh. I was in the flesh. <laughs> I was in the flesh. And that, that, that reality of it was. And I just, I want to encourage you, friends. It's so important that we are living lives full of the Holy Spirit. And when I say full of the Holy Spirit, I'm not just talking about, well, do you speak in tongues or not? I'm talking about, are you actually evidently, is there evidence of fruit in your life? On all accounts, are we making disciples? Are we being faithful witnesses to the Lord? Because Acts 1.8 doesn't say that I will fill you with the Holy Spirit to make you speak in tongues. And I, I, I believe in the charismata. I believe in the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But what I see the words of Jesus saying, I will, uh, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and empower you to be my witnesses. And that's so important for us to make note of. It's power isn't in your ability to present it, the message of the cross. It's not in your ability to present it with wise or persuasive words, but with your faithfulness to simply present it. I'm often left thinking about other religions and how wacky they are. I don't know if you've thought about this, but you, you've got some Eastern religions that are really into reincarnation. And then I, I was actually looking up uh, different religious beliefs. And in some sects of Islam, uh, there's all kinds of weird stuff that I don't want to go off. But uh, in this one region in India, I'm just for the sake of time, uh, practice, practice followers of Hinduism, maybe that's the best way to say it, in a certain region in India, will take their babies, newborn babies, and as uh, some kind of rite of passage and luck, when they're newly born, they'll throw them off of the top of the temple into a crowd of people that have a bed sheet lined, like, and it's like 50 stories or something ridiculous like that. They're throwing them off of, maybe it's 50 feet. That sounds more realistic. It was 50-something when I read it. Um, I wasn't planning on throwing this in my sermon today, but uh, just these out there wagging. They believe that the baby will be more lucky if it survives, and they catch it in the, in the, in the bed sheets. And imagine that's terrifying for a young infant that you're not supposed to shake at all and throw them off. Whatever. It's weird. It's bonkers. It's wild. I would say foolish. Um, but then I start thinking about the things that Christians believe. Um, and they're kind of weird, if I'm being honest. I mean, we took communion today where we're taking, uh, drinking uh, a cup and talking about the blood of Jesus and eating bread and talking about it being the body of Jesus, which, you know, people thought that was weird when Jesus first said it as well. Um, but we're talking about God becoming a man and dying and then not staying dead. There, there are some pretty crazy things to try to wrap our minds around that we can't really fully wrap our minds around when we're thinking about uh, faith in Christ. And so when I look at Acts 26 
And I look at verse 24 with Festus's response to this craziness that Paul has just kind of thrown off there, um, uh, where he says, uh, I mean, Paul has just talked about uh, God rising, God dying, God rising from the dead, and then there being hope for all of humanity because of that fact. The response here in Acts 26, verse 24 uh, says this, now as uh, Paul made his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are beside yourself. Much learning is driving you mad. Uh, basically saying, you're insane. <coughs> and I, I can honestly say, I probably thought similar thoughts to that of Festus before I genuinely encountered Jesus. And so uh, the gospel, guys, when it is pro- properly proclaimed, when it is properly lived and demonstrated in everyday life, it will make some people think that you are crazy. Has anybody here ever been, Stan, I know you get it all the time. People probably just think you're insane, right? Praying for people downtown, having this Jesus cafe where you're just willing to pray and share share the gospel with anybody. People probably think you're nuts for renting out a bookshop and paying rent and these things to just simply love on people. Why aren't you, I mean, why aren't you selling coffee? Why aren't you doing something that makes money, right? You've lost your mind. I love how I can say that about Stan because I know he's taking it as a compliment right now. But <laughs> he's like, Pastor Nate, you've never said such nice things about me before. But I do believe when the gospel is properly demonstrated, when it's actually lived out, the, the response from the, the natural carnal reaction is going to be one of insanity. Paul put it this way, if we jump back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where we just were, if we continue, we read verse 17, if we read verse 18, it says this, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the very power of God. I need you to take note, there is clear division that takes place here in these verses. It divides humanity into two very specific groups, those who are perishing and those who are not. And it says of those who are perishing, they are foolish. And those who are not, they're those, who, those who are being saved, uh, we see uh, it being uh, due to the power of God. The distinction between the two is found in their response to the message of the cross. This is what Paul would refer to as the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, God himself, who was without sin. The spotless lamb who would willingly die for our sin, rise again triumphant over death so that we could be with him. It's scandalous, it's foolish, and it makes zero earthly sense when we're looking at it from a carnal perspective. Today, I need you to understand this, and I'm thankful for those of us in this room, but people are either being saved by the message of the cross and the power of God, or you are actively perishing because the cross has made a way to God. Pick up in Acts 26, verse 25, he says, but he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus, but speak the words of truth and reason. For the king before whom I also speak freely knows these things, for I am convinced that none of these things escapes his attention, 
since this thing was not done in a corner. Truth and reason. And I think Paul said this so explicitly when he's talking about uh, truth and reason because it was based on historical events. Agrippa was very familiar with what was happening in Judea at the time. The crucifixion of Jesus was something that was known by everyone in this area. Uh, the, the rumors and testimony of resurrection were not an uncommon thing. That wasn't happening in a corner. It wasn't just happening in the shadows. This was open for examination. The historical foundation of, of Paul's message made it true. Okay, I, I need you to understand that. But when he's talking about truth and reason, the reasonable response to something that's true is to believe it. Is it not? This is why our culture is so confused when we're talking about what's true is true and with relative truth being out there. Nothing's absolute anymore because no longer are there just two genders. No longer are there just these different ideologies and whatnot. Uh, truth is all relative, and so it's not reasonable to believe anything anymore, right? <laughs> uh, but when something is actually true, like it's cold outside, it would be reasonable to put on a jacket before you go outside. Um, and so what I would say this, uh, reason, uh, it simply isn't reasonable to ignore or deny things that actually happen. And so who Jesus is and what he did must be accounted for. And this would be that spot in the sermon where I'd give you all the statistics and all the facts about the, the historical accuracy of the crucifixion and the resurrection and all the different evidence that exists there. Uh, but that'd be for a different time. Uh, but I just think that's interesting here. Um, that yes, it is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's just not, it's not just blind faith either that Paul is asking us to step out into. There is uh, truth and reason behind it. But Acts 26, verse 27. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do believe. And this is, where, this is where Paul is way better of an evangelist than I am because he brings Agrippa to a place of decision with a very pointed question. And if I'm honest, this is probably the place where I struggle the most when it comes to evangelism. I want everybody to have like an Acts chapter two kind of experience where they're like begging Peter, like what must we do to be saved, right? And he's like, repent and be baptized. But not, if I'm being honest, like most people don't ask me that question when I'm telling them about Jesus. They're just kind of like, oh yeah, okay. And so uh, Paul deliberately turns the conversation here where he says, King Agrippa, do you believe? Right? He says, do you believe the prophets? He doesn't even say, do you believe in Jesus? Because Paul's logical uh, line of thinking here is that if you believe in the prophets, like if you believe what the scriptures said about the Messiah to be true, then your natural conclusion is going to be that Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, and you should put, his, you should put your faith in him. And so he's saying, like, I know you believe. He's rooting for Agrippa here, right? <clears throat> but I want you to take note of this, because as we read uh, the next verse here, it's one of the saddest verses um, that I read in Scripture, is that Agrippa's indecision is a decision in and of itself. And I, 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 people that waver on the fence of whether or not to follow Christ are actually uh, <coughs> are actually not following him. It's the equivalent of denying him. <coughs> so Acts twenty six verse twenty eight says. 
Then Agrippa said to Paul, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost is a sad and dangerous word. I had a friend in middle school that drove me crazy. His name was Abram. We hung out. We did a lot of stupid things together. We were always uh, lighting things on fire and doing stupid stuff. One time I lit a fire in my room with this guy thinking that we could keep it contained. And we thought we could roast marshmallows in my single wide trailer in a five-gallon metal bucket. And my parents weren't going to find out. We were a special kind of stupid. But we'd hang out in his basement all the time. His room was down there. We'd play video games. I think we were playing like Soul Calibur one day on the GameCube. And we were just having a lot of fun. It was kind of our like weekly thing that we did every weekend. And without fail, his mom would yell down the stairs, Abram, have you started the laundry yet? Because his responsibility was to start the laundry. And I'm sitting here looking around and his laundry is strewn across the room. He hasn't moved an inch. We're still, we're still playing the same stupid video game that we were playing like three hours ago. And he would yell back up at his mom, almost, all the time. And, I, and even, even in my like rebellious punk teenager days where I was sitting out there playing video games and eating pizza, I was like, man, that is the dumbest response I've ever heard. You either have started or you haven't. This is a yes or no question. Like, it's not like, it's not like is the laundry almost finished? But uh, have you started or have you not? And that's always kind of just lived like rent-free in my brain, this idea of almost doing something and just the absurdity of it, right? What is that, uh, what is that like uh, idiom that's thrown around? It's like almost only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes or something like that. I'm probably butchering that. But that was just always like, just, it, it jars me to this day, <laughs> And I didn't treat my parents well or anything like that, but it, just start the laundry. It wasn't even that hard. But he'd always yell, almost. And when it comes to almost becoming a Christian, it doesn't really, doesn't really flesh out. It doesn't really play out. There's lots of speculation on why Agrippa didn't convert. And, and, and really, there's only speculation that we have here. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised if his company uh, was what was holding him back from making a decision to follow Jesus. And I say that just because of who was there present in the room with him. You have Festus, this guy who's of, of kind of a notable worth and has a lot of influence here. And he's calling out Paul for being crazy. And so, you know, if, if Agrippa were to throw in his lot with Paul here and decide to become a Christian, all of a sudden now he's going to be the guy ridiculed for being crazy and lost his marbles, right? This is the king. You can't have that. Or maybe it was Bernice, right? This is, this is wild. Uh, I'm not going to go through the whole history here, but essentially uh, Bernice's uh, Agrippa's uh, incestuous lover. They're related. Uh, it's, it's all kinds of immorality that's going on there and I tried to trace the family tree and it's just all convoluted um, basically very immoral relationship that is happening between Agrippa and Bernice here um, is where most scholars would speculate and to become a Christian would be uh, would mean that he would lose that relationship he would lose that friendship he would lose 
uh, immoral friends and this incestuous relationship. And honestly, and I, I know that I'm speaking, I'm probably preaching to the choir here, but there's nothing worth holding on to in comparison to what we receive in Jesus. Whether it be a relationship, whether it be a friendship, whether it be our pride, whether it be our sanity, whether it be what people think about us, but there was obviously something holding him back from saying yes to Jesus. And I think Paul was probably pretty perceiving when he said, I know you believe the prophets. I know that you believe what I'm saying is true. I know that you see the reason in this, but there's something that's preventing you from saying yes. And as I think about this, this, this word almost, and I, I thought it would be uh, a different way to end the sermon this morning, but when I was in high school and I just started following the Lord, uh, I got really involved in metal music. And then uh, simultaneously, I got really engaged with uh, spoken word poetry, <laughs> which some, there was some overlap there for, for, for a little bit, but uh, a lot of it was uh, polarizingly different uh, ends of the spectrum. But there was a poem that, uh, that this guy named Ezekiel, and I, Ezekiel A, I don't know how to say his last name, uh, shared on being almost saved that has uh, really impacted me. And I wanted to share that with you guys uh, here right now. One of the most dangerous terms in English diction. If it could be translated into audio, it would sound like from the saxophone of Lisa Simpson, two words designed and strategically combined to form the biggest oxymoron in the history of mankind. Almost. But see, as far as this world's concerned, you can live your life foul and could almost get away with murder if you have a nice smile. You could almost meet folks just to almost sleep around and stop by at your local clinic where you almost have a child. But see, almost is no stranger to Satan. Here's proof. See, Satan only tells lies when they're almost the truth. And it's amazing. In our incompleteness, we find complacency. But if, but if almost is one of Lucifer's many traits, then somehow we've inadvertently become good at Satan impersonations. But on the contrary, Christ... Christ did his job fully, and he proved he was God when he died on a cross like it was his duty, and to pardon my iniquities that I committed rudely, he resurrected from the grave just to tell death to excuse me, but excuse me. This is your life, and that's something I can't impose on. But your body is God's home, which wasn't long to get foreclosed on. See, an almost Christian looks right, but lives wrong. Can't stand the conviction in Romans, so they sit down to be comforted in songs. Never understood worship, but love to lift their hands and sing songs like, I surrender almost. Because it's far too expensive for you to spend your life on something that doesn't appeal to your five senses. See, nowadays, Christianity is like a Louis rag. No functional use, but we just rock it because it's stylish. Not, not righteous, but right-ish. So all God sees is a pile of Ishmael's when he intended for Isaac's. 
and we're moved by our emotions, so we're saved when we feel like it. So technically, we've never really been saved. We've merely tried it, so no wonder why we're never sold out when we return it after we buy it now. Let me break it down because you need to beware. Our lives could lack the very standards that need to be there. Because on that final day of judgment, while God's receiving his heir, will he say, son, well done, or poor, medium rare. Now, even by worldly standards, it'd be highly insane for you to start spending all of your money days before you almost get paid. Like, like parents, you wouldn't send your kids to a school that's almost safe. And ladies, would you honestly date, get engaged to, and married to a man who claims he's almost straight? Now, this is the very thing about God. This is the very thing about God that we all try to get around. But his standards are like between two closely engrafted mountains. There is no middle ground. So a halfway life is not profitable to you. Because after all of Sunday services, Bible studies, and prayer meetings, God may say, I never knew you. That's not even the worst part of living your life as neutral. is that we were once Arctic, but it's the warmness that is causing him to spew you. See, this, this is exactly the type of mentality that had me. I was bound and held down by the unforgiving gravity of my spiritual reality. I was a Christian, or at least I portrayed the fantasy with a filthy personal life, but a, God bless you, brother. How you doing, sister? Mm, mm, mm. Personality. I was a male, enveloped by guilt because I was stamped a sinner. I said, I was a male enveloped by guilt because I was stamped a sinner. My message couldn't be received because I didn't represent the sender, yet I was almost delivered. To that one day I totally, completely, and absolutely surrendered. Took heed to Jesus Christ who told me it was time for change. Now I'm no longer bound to sin. Point blank off the chain. But you could ask Umar Abdul Muttalib and he'll tell you the same. That you don't almost go to jail when you almost blow up a plane. Like we don't almost go to hell when we almost get saved. Despise the cross that he was slain and thus the cause in which he came. But don't worry, I'm almost done. But before I leave this stage, we have all worked in sin and death was minimum wage. I said, we've all worked in sin and death was minimum wage. But if it wasn't for Christ, we would have almost got paid. been looking at Paul, we've been looking at his life, <laughs> looking at this basically, uh, just basically Acts chapter 26 here and seeing, um, seeing the gospel presented and seeing the tragedy of someone not responding to that gospel, of almost becoming a Christian. Uh, I, I think that poem really kind of hits it succinctly or hits it pretty directly here that there's a lot of us that 
haven't really fully surrendered. We're almost there. (laughs) Maybe we've embraced Jesus as Savior. We know He died for us and He loves us, but we've not actually surrendered everything to Him. My prayer for us today is that none of us would be partially committed to the Lord. Not even mostly surrendered to the Lord. He desires all of us. And he paid too high of a price to just have part of our attention. He paid too high of a price to have part of your heart, to have part of your allegiance. He wants all of you. Thank you for listening to this week's message. If you want to check out more of our messages, find us on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. Just search Open Door Pagosa. Our ministry is made possible by the faithful generosity of people just like you. If you were blessed by this morning's message and want to partner with what the Lord is doing in Pagosa Springs, find us at opendoorpagosa.com. Here you can give and stay connected with everything we are doing as a church.